Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Coming up on this episode of The Box of Oddities, probably the world's worst post-funeral buffet. And the wild story of a most unusual 20th century millionaire. The Box of Oddities. If it's weird, we'll talk about it. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. <laughs> yeah, I have the mic propped in a shoe. <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are, uh, we're <laughs> welcome to the show, everyone. Um, let me just set the stage for you. I am in Orlando at our apartment. Cat, on the other hand, is in Maine visiting friends and family. And uh, you, describe your surroundings. You're still in the hotel room, correct? I am in a hotel room, yes. And I have uh, every pillow that has been made available to me stacked around me while mm -hmm. I'm shoved into a corner of this hotel room. The microphone is propped in a shoe, um, which... <laughs> I'm really glad I brought these shoes because they're sturdy. Uh, so yeah. it's ankle support as well as microphone support. That's delightful. How has your trip gone so far? Any mishaps at the airport? He said knowingly. <laughs> no mishap. I mean, I did get some weird looks because um, I did have this mic with me, which, as you know, looks suspiciously like a gun uh, in mm. an x-ray. And then mm. also I had a hand mixer in my suitcase with the hand mixer attachments shoved in shoes. So, um, <laughs> well, that shoe is getting a lot of utilitarian use. I'm so glad I brought them. Are those Rothy's? Uh, no, no. No, these are these are Adidas. I think the Rothy's would be too shallow for Probably, proper yeah. mic support. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, for I brought them for volleyball because I get to play volleyball while I'm up here, and I've got I've been able to see some people that I haven't seen in a really long time. And I went to a poetry reading. It's been a really really good time so far. Before we uh, started recording, 
uh, we were discussing the differences in our evenings. Kat was telling me about all the exciting things that she has done, many of which she just mentioned. And when it came to <laughs> <laughs> it came to uh, my turn to share the exciting things that uh, took place last night, I told her about this new egg salad recipe that I've come up with, and. Uh, I think that's pretty much it in a microcosm uh, for, for you and me. You're, you're yeah. doing all of these things, and I'm really excited about a new egg salad recipe. <laughs> I love it. It reminds me of that TikTok trend that's like, uh, will your husband ever cheat on you? And then they pan to their husband doing something completely geeky, like yours would be an egg salad recipe. Yeah. It's good, though. It's really good. It's deviled egg salad. Oh, yeah. okay. I saw the uh, the title and I went, well, I like deviled eggs and I like egg salad. And so I want to get this episode done because it's been chilling since last night and it's going to be really delicious. Well, please, if you want to go first, I would I would be happy for that to commence. Really probably shouldn't have talked about food leading into this uh, this story. This is this is uh, this this one's a this one's rough. This is one's this your version of a trigger warning? Yeah, it's it's a trigger warning. We've talked a lot about strange funeral rituals and unusual ways that different cultures in society uh, deal with death or celebrate death or mourn. And I'm surprised we have not dealt with this. We're going to take a look today at the Aghore Sadis. Uh, it's a unique and some would say bizarre sect of ascetics from India known for their extreme practices and beliefs. Okay. They're part of the Shaiva tradition of Hinduism, and their beliefs and practices are rooted in the teachings of the Lord Shiva. Shiva is one of the primary gods in Hinduism and is often associated with destruction as well as creation. So he's pretty much got everything covered there. They believe that they advance their spirituality by embracing destruction. The Aghore Sadis believe that everything in the universe is connected and that by embracing the taboo and the profane, they can achieve a higher level of spiritual understanding. In order to do this, they need to reject societal norms and embrace extreme practices. They seek to connect with the divine and achieve a higher level of understanding doing this. But these things, well, by Western standards, and I would venture a guess as to say, most standards uh, would be considered bizarre and often mm. gruesome, the ceremonies that they practice. But these are all intended to help them achieve spir spiritual enlightenment. One of the most controversial aspects of their practice is the consumption of human flesh and urine. Ooh, no thank you. It's, uh, it's not common these days with all Akhore Sadas, but it is a notable aspect of their tradition and still is practiced to this day. They believe that by consuming the flesh of the dead, they can conquer death and achieve immortality. Uh, I don't think that's how that works. <laughs> they also believe that urine has medicinal properties and can cure many diseases. It, in fact, does not. Well, I've heard that if you get stung by a stingray, uh, you know, you can put urine on it and it's supposed to act as some sort of a neutralizing agent for the uh the venom i've heard that is that just an urban legend but you don't drink it you just say ow ow would you pee on my foot please <laughs> 
Now, the consumption of human flesh and urine is part of a larger ceremony that is intended to remind them of the impermanence of the physical world and the eternal nature of the universe. Now, it's important to note that uh, they don't just go around eating any dead body. It's almost like part of a funeral tradition. (laughs) These are bodies that are fresh. And oftentimes they're burned on a pyre. So it's almost like a uh, like a barbecue. Oh, okay. So they are cooked. I, it doesn't have to be, oh. but I think in many cases, yeah, it's it's cooked. Okay. They also use the ash from the cremated cor- uh, corpses to cover their bodies. And they also will wear human bones and skulls as jewelry. The idea is that uh, the more they surround themselves with death and decay, the better they understand the nature of the universe and connect and can connect with the divine. Now, you said that this was supposed to be connected to efforting toward immortality as well. Mm. Have we found that any of these people have, in fact, been immortal? Undetermined. Mm. Seems like we would have heard of that. I think they're talking about spiritual immortality as opposed to physical immortality. I should have made that clear. Now, those are pretty bizarre practices. But in addition to their consumption of human flesh and urine, which usually takes place after the... uh, the funeral pyre. And and by the way, nobody likes to go to those uh, potlucks after a funeral anyway, but I can't imagine this one. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they do engage in other less bizarre practices, which include meditation and yoga, and they often use cannabis and other psychoactive substances to alter their state of consciousness and to uh, connect with a divine. <sighs> Dude, I'm hungry. <sighs> Well, I think there's a little leftover Mahatma in the fridge. Oh, my gosh. I think that what you said might be inappropriate. Well, it would be if I had said it out loud. (laughs) They believe everything in the universe is connected, including the living and the dead. They see death as a natural part of the cycle of life, and they embrace it as a means of achieving spiritual enlightenment. They actually live, many of them, in the cremation grounds and surround themselves constantly with death and decay uh, to seek understanding of the permanence of the uh, or impermanence of the physical world and connect with the eternal nature of the universe. See, I think that uh, being surrounded by death is one thing, but being surrounded by decay is another mm. thing. That yeah. one sounds significantly more unpleasant than the other. The Aghore Sadis also engage in other strange and often gruesome ceremonies. For example, they sometimes engage in self-mutilation, and they'll cut their bodies up with knives and other sharp objects, pieces of glass, that sort of thing. They believe that embracing pain and suffering along with death and decay will help them achieve this higher level of spiritual understanding. This doesn't sound like a very nice existence. Yeah, it's painful and it's smelly, I would think. They practice various forms of meditation and yoga, including kundalini yoga, which is intended to awaken the serpent energy within the body. Mm -hmm. They often use mantras and chanting to help them connect with the divine and achieve a higher level of understanding. Now, I, I try to meditate as much as I can. Uh, yep. I'm actually doing doing better now and getting to it almost every day. But I have to draw the line at flesh and urine consumption. 
All right. Well, you're just not committed. That's fine. <laughs> I'm spiritually inferior, I guess. So while the practice of the Aghore Sadas is considered controversial by, by many, they're represented in some Hindu circles for their, their dedication to spiritual enlightenment. They are seen as a reminder that there is more to life than the material world and that the search for spiritual understanding can, in fact, take many forms. Mm, true, true. And despite the controversy, they continue to exist and thrive in modern-day India. I suppose, as we've discussed before, it's not up to anyone else to determine how one seeks their spiritual path or whatever. Yeah, well, you know, as long as the dead guy has agreed to be barbecued and eaten. Right. And everybody's consenting, I whatever, I don't see a problem with it. Not my cup of tea or urine, as the case may be. But who am I to judge? Their practices are, not surprisingly, uh, misunderstood and controversial. But these practices are not unique to Hinduism. There are many other spiritual traditions that have engaged in similar practices, including the Christian ascetics who practice self-flagellation and other forms of self-mortification. You've seen film of people walking down the streets recreating Jesus' walk to the cross. And they'll be beating themselves with ropes that have nails in it and things like that. So it's mm-hmm. it's not I just... I first learned about self-flagellation while reading the book, uh, The Da Vinci Code. And I was like, well, what? Is this a real <laughs> thing? And then I learned that it is a real thing. Thanks, Dan Brown. First time I heard of that, I thought they were saying self-flagellation. A lot more of us have experienced that. And that's a little more tolerable than experiencing somebody else's uh, Tolerable to who? I heard somebody say that uh, there's a study somewhere, and I doubt it's true, but they say that uh, your own farts don't smell that bad to you, or at least as bad as they do to other people. Maybe, I don't know, but a fart's a fart. Is that how you're wrapping up your topic? (laughs) Yeah, we're done. (laughs) No, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Um, (laughs) A fart's a fart. The end. We'll be back after this important message. Um, They are a very unique and fascinating sect from India, known for their practices and beliefs, their ceremonies, bizarre, gruesome, yes, but they are rooted in a deep spiritual tradition that dates back many, many centuries. And while the practices are, in fact, controversial and not accepted by a lot of people, they are a reminder that spirituality takes many forms and that the search for enlightenment is uh, an ongoing journey. So let's not be too judgy, but just enough to not be involved in that. That's just weird to me. My source information, Medium Magazine and The Washington Post. Wow. You're welcome. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing. If you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames. And living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now... That thing in the middle. As I'm sure you know, times were tough during the Depression. People didn't have a lot of money, so they had to make do with what they had. And what they had were a lot of burlap bags. Yep, burlap bags. You know, the ones that vegetables were transported in. People would take these bags and turn them into clothing. They'd cut holes for the arms and the head, and voila, they had a shirt, or pants, or a hat, or all of the above. Now, the companies that made those burlap bags, they were no dummies. They saw an opportunity to make their bags more appealing. So they started making them in all kinds of colors and patterns, and with fancy logos. And people ate it up, literally. They'd buy vegetables just for the bags. Oh, I need some carrots. Sure, but make sure they come in a bag with a nice paisley print. It was like a fashion show in the produce aisle. Of course, there were some downsides to wearing burlap clothing. For one thing, it was scratchy and hot and not particularly flattering. But hey, at least you weren't naked. And you were being eco-friendly by upcycling. Burlap bags 
the Depression-era fashion trend that nobody saw coming. Next time you're at the grocery store, take a look at those burlap bags and imagine wearing them as a smart pair of culottes. Bree sent us an email, I'm woefully behind in my boo listening, but I love binging boo, so it's working out okay. I just <laughs> listened to episode 411, and I'm touched by Rob's story of intersex and gender identity. Uh, this was the story about the person from Austra Australia that dealt with um, some pretty big challenges. She goes on to say, as the mom of a transgender daughter, the story hit close to home, and I'm so sorry that Rob didn't have the uh, medical and emotional support they needed from birth, but their positive outlook and perseverance is an inspiration. I'm so yeah. glad they found the treatment that they deserve and are figuring out who they truly are. At the same time, I'm terrified that we in the U.S., especially where my family and I live in Missouri, are going backward in this basic biology lesson, treating more and more children like Rob's mother treated him, like they're not worthy of love or human rights or even capable of knowing themselves enough to recognize who they are and choose mm -hmm. to express themselves accordingly. Thank you for sharing Rob's story. Knowledge truly is power. I hope that exposure to information about gender and biological sex and where they intersect and diverge will change people's minds and make the world a little friendlier for people like Rob and my daughter. You're doing important work with every episode. This one just touched my heart a little more than others. Thank you, Bree. Mm -hmm. Thank you for writing. We got an email from Kells. <laughs> I was listening to Box 533 on the way to work, and Kat was talking about Tommy Fitzpatrick and how he enlisted underage. My mm. grandpa grew up poor, and to escape that, he joined the Navy at 16 or 17 and served as a cook on a bunch of carriers during World War II and Korea as well. Small wow. world. Love the show. Hope you guys have the best day, Kells. Yeah, that wasn't such an uncommon thing. And I'm thinking that obviously the armed forces can verify a person's age. I mean, we mm. have that technology. Even back then, we had that technology. It's my guess that uh, in many cases anyway, they just kind of overlooked it. Okay, yeah. he's only 16, but we need some help. Uh, let's put him, let's make him a cook. That way he's not seeing any action on the front, but we're still getting the job done. In the Civil War, there was very, very little vetting of uh, people's ages. And you look at pictures of different regiments and the youngest babies. people, so many of them were, were so young and they always made the youngest person the drummer boy. And you look at the pictures of some of these drummer boys, they're like 11. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and they're going into battle. I always end up thinking about that Motorhead song, 1916, which oh, yeah. is so emotional and mm. just, and it's entirely about that. And yeah, ugh, yeah. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, it's crazy. Along with being the drummer boy, they often made them the color bearer. So they would carry the flag into battle. And it's been proven by history that that is, you might as well paint a target on your back. Yeah, it's not a real safe position. No, that's the first thing everybody shoots at is the enemy flag. Yeah. Let's give it to the 12-year-old. Maybe the thought process was the 12-year-old's not going to be that handy during battle, so... Or or just shorter, you know, and <laughs> smaller shorter. target. Sure, maybe. Maybe, that, maybe that's it. They had to give him a larger flagpole. None of those things happened, probably. <clears throat> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you know technology allows us to watch you through your device as you listen to us? Haha, made you look. This is The Box of Oddities. Speaking of unfortunate historical events. <laughs> oh, good. We need more of that. Sarah Rector was born in 1902 in Taft, Oklahoma. She came from very humble beginnings and had five siblings. Her family were African-American members of the Muscogee Creek Nation on Indian Territory. Sarah's father was the son of John Rector, a Muscogee freedman. John Rector's father, Benjamin McQueen, was enslaved by Rayleigh Grayson, a Muscogee Creek Indian. John Rector's mother, Molly McQueen, was also enslaved by a Muscogee leader. Now, it wasn't a norm for Native Americans to practice slavery, but some influential individuals in the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole tribes located in the southeastern states would enslave people to showcase their social status. And hmm. this was done to impress white Southerners, who then in turn acknowledged them as the five civilized tribes. Okay, so the fact that they owned slaves made them civilized. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It, it was that and other assimilation efforts. But after the Civil War, they were entitled to land allotments af under the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887, when the Indian Territory integrated with Oklahoma Territory. Now, this was a mandatory step in integrating the Indian Territory uh, to form the state of Oklahoma. In 1907, hundreds of black children referred to then as the Creek Freedmen Miners were each granted 160 acres of land. And this became Taft. It was an almost entirely black town. The parcel allotted to Sarah Rector was located in Glenpool, about 60 miles from where she and her family lived. And her allotment was located in the middle of the Glen Pool oil field, and it was initially valued at about $550. It was considered an inferior 
infertile soil. It wasn't suitable for farming, and better land had been reserved for white settlers and members of the tribe. The family lived simply. They weren't terribly poor, but the $30 annual property tax on the parcel was an incredible burden, and so her father petitioned to sell the land. But because of certain restrictions placed on the land, he was required to keep it and required to continue paying taxes. The American way. Right. So to help cover this expense, in February of 1911, the land was leased to the Standard Oil Company, and that was to help you know, cover those expenses. In mm. 1913, an independent oil driller, B.B. Jones, was drilling a well on the property, which produced a gusher. And this started to bring in barrels of oil a day. And not just a few, about 2,500 barrels of oil a day. Ooh. Sarah Rector at the time was 11 years old and still owner of the land. And she began earning more than $300 a day. Do you want to take a guess how much that is in today's dollars? Do not look it up. I'm not looking it up. Uh, That was what year exactly? 1913. 300 bucks back then, I am going to say $20,000. You way overshot it. It was $9,000. Still. Yeah, just $9,146 a day. No big deal. And it's passive income. (laughs) And this was long before chat GPT. (laughs) Which is what we're all looking for. (laughs) Sarah Rector quickly began getting a lot of national attention from newspapers all over the country with openly racist coverage. I'm not even going to reread some of these headlines because they are appalling. But naturally, she started receiving all kinds of requests for loans, for donations, and even marriage proposals. Again, she's 12 years old at this time. Whoa. Now, the law at this time required full-blooded Indians, black adults, and children who were citizens of the Indian Territory with significant property and money to be assigned a well-respected white guardian. Oh, my God. Are you for real right now? Thus, as soon as Rector began to receive this windfall, there was a lot of pressure to change her guardianship from her parents to a local white resident named T.J. Porter. Luckily, this guy was known to the family, and it turned out that even though a lot of these guardians turned out to be thieves, T.J. Porter was decent and invested her earnings judiciously in rich river bottom land, business properties, and lucrative mortgages. And the investments and the payments to Sarah were overseen by a judge. So she's making a crap ton of money, and her guardian, which is disgusting that she had to have in the first place, but he was decent, (laughs) and he He's earning her even more money. Given her wealth in 1913, the Oklahoma legislature, prepare yourself for this. The Oklahoma legislature made an effort to have her declared legally white. That would allow her to reap the benefits of her elevated social standing, like riding in a first class car on the trains and such. Yeah, and it's the only way that it would be possible. 
I didn't even know that it was possible. Well, I do remember reading a while back that, um, especially when during the Industrial Revolution, of course, a lot of immigrants were coming into the United States and they were seen as second class citizens. And there was a petition eventually for Italians to be declared white because Hmm. Italians were seen as second class and they didn't want to be anymore. In 1914, a Chicago defender began taking an interest in Rector just as rumors began to fly that she was actually a white immigrant who was being kept in poverty by a black family. (laughs) (laughs) This newspaper had published an article claiming that her family was mismanaging her estate and that she was being undereducated and that she had a poor quality of life, none of which were true. I mean, except for that she was living with a black family, her family. So this caused black leaders Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois to become concerned about her welfare. And in June of that year, a special agent for the NAACP sent a memo to Du Bois regarding her situation. This agent, James C. Waters Jr., had been corresponding with the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the United States Children's Bureau over concerns regarding the quote-unquote mismanagement of Rector's estate. He wrote of her white financial guardian. Is it not possible to have her cared for in a decent manner by people of her own race instead of by a member of a race which would deny her and her kind the treatment accorded to a good yard dog? This prompted Du Bois to establish the Children's Department of the NAACP, which would investigate claims of white guardians who were suspected of depriving black children of their land and their wealth. So even though Sarah's guardian, T.J. Porter, was doing a really good job with her investments, it did launch an investigation into other guardians who may not have been doing the same. Washington also intervened to help the Rector family. In October of that year, Rector was enrolled in the Children's School, which is a boarding school at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. And upon graduating, she attended the Institute. Sarah Rector owned stocks, bonds, a boarding house, businesses, a 2,000-acre piece of prime river bottom land. At the age of 18, Sarah Rector was a millionaire. In like 1920s dollars. Wow. At that point, she left Tuskegee and with her entire family moved to Kansas City, Missouri. She purchased a house on 12th Street known as the Rector House. As you can imagine how unusual it must have seemed in segregated Kansas City, Missouri, fancy limousines and Cadillacs taking young black relatives of Sarah to school and out for barbecues, (laughs) a white-owned department store opening its doors just so Sarah Rector could shop. Soon after moving to Kansas City, Sarah was able to make her own decisions. It was 1922, and she married her first husband. The wedding was a very private affair with only her mother and the bridegroom's paternal grandparents present. And the couple had three sons, Kenneth Jr., Leonard, and Clarence. They ended up being divorced in 1930. And in 1934, Sarah Rector married restaurant owner William Crawford. Sarah Rector later went on to own one of the first black-owned auto dealerships in the country. And she lived a very comfortable life, enjoying her wealth. It was said that she did so extravagantly. (laughs) She had a taste for fine clothing and cars. She threw lavish parties. She entertained celebrities like Count Basie and Duke Ellington. Sarah Rector became known as the, and please understand this is a quote, richest colored girl in the world. 
I don't even like saying that. I know. <laughs> it makes me feel real yucky. Sarah Rector died on July 22nd, 1967 at the age of 65, and her remains were buried in the city cemetery in her hometown of Taft. The Rector House on 12th Street in Kansas City, Missouri, is currently owned by a local nonprofit. They have the intention of restoring it and making it a historical and cultural location. That is quite a story. Right? There's so many things that make you go, whoa, boa. I know. I got my information from blackhistory.com, searching for Sarah Rector, the richest black girl in America by Tanya Bolden, Wikipedia, obviously, and aaregistry.com. I did find a photo of Sarah Rector's mother and she's sitting on this beautiful settee and she is just head to toe in lace. And you can see like they they did it up. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's pretty great. It's awesome. Great story, sweetie. Very inspirational indeed. Got an email from Sharon who wanted to know if we have any merch available. We do have merch. You can find it at our website, uh, theboxofoddities.com. The, uh, the link is cleverly uh, labeled merch. We also got an email asking if we were planning on doing any live shows before we move. And uh, though we don't have any plan before we move, I do have to say uh, we can still leave Ecuador when we move <laughs> yeah. there. And this is something that has come up with like my family as well. Like, I'm not going to be stuck there. I don't have <laughs> some obligation to, I mean, it's not a whole world away. It's just South America, you guys. It's not a penal colony. We're not like Papillon. <laughs> we, uh, we also, once we get settled, we will start looking at options. Yes, yeah. We also got a message asking if it was an April Fool's joke that we were moving to South yeah. America, and it's, it's yeah. not. No, it's not. We're really going to do it. It's something that we've talked about for years and years. We've been a number of times. We love it there. And it's, you know, it's just like you're in Maine right now, mm. and I'm in Orlando, and it takes about, it's almost exactly the same length flight from Orlando to Maine as it is from Orlando to uh, Quito yeah. in Ecuador. But it does sound weird. Anyway, we appreciate you guys. We love you so much. We're so glad you're part of the Freak family. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak, no matter where you are. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast on Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Coming up on this episode of the Box of Oddities, probably the world's worst post-funeral buffet. <laughs> Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that. 
because you're already listening to a podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.